Well, we are in our second message in the Relentless series. How do we have the character, the tenacity, the relentless pursuit of God to know God and to follow Him and to obey Him? How do we live in this world? You know, when I was growing up, it, it, it felt like, I know it wasn't true, it felt like everybody went to church. Now, a lot of people went to church for social status. It helped their little small businesses. Uh, you know, come shop at my store. I'll give you a discount. You know, give you the ministerial discount. I mean, everybody kind of either pretended to go to church or they didn't say anything about not going. It was a different world. Now, the one good thing that's happening in the erosion of the moral values of America is it's giving us an opportunity to be distinctive. But it's also calling us to a relentless pursuit of God. We cannot reach this nation. We cannot take the Great Commission to the nations of the world without a relentless pursuit of God. I grew up in the 60s, and uh, Paul Harvey was a big radio voice in the 60s. And Paul Harvey said, in times like these, it helps to recall that there have always been times like these. You know, if you dig below the surface, you find that not a lot changes, that the, but just we didn't know about it. Because kind of all we knew was local news. And you got 30 minutes of world news, which wasn't all the news of the world, just the biggest of the events, on three TV stations. So you kind of got your news from TV, or you got your news from radio, but it was a pretty limited view of the world. Not like today, where we're in a 24-7 news cycle, and we can find out anything going on anywhere at any time. In the 1960s and 50s, as a child and then a teenager, I learned things that the world was changing. We had come out of a century with two world wars and the Korean War. We weren't yet in the Vietnam War, but it was a time of prosperity and, and the baby boomers. And I'm a baby boomer. I was born in that generation of the greatest generation, but then hit the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we saw it on TV. And I don't know why they thought the way to protect yourself from a nuclear attack is to get under your desk in the first grade, but that's what we did. And uh, I, I don't know how that was going to help us, but, uh, you know, it, growing up in Mississippi, I saw uh, the first African-American student, James Meredith, to go to the University of Mississippi. And I saw the hate in the governor and just defying. It happened in Alabama with George Wallace. I mean, just the hatred that was going on in the process of desegregation and integration. I, I, I saw Khrushchev beating the podium at the UN, declaring, we will bury you about the United States. I was in the sixth grade when John Kennedy was assassinated and they sent us home from school. And then Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King were assassinated. I remember seeing the riots at the Democratic National Convention and the protest over the Vietnam War and Woodstock and the sexual revolution and Hell's Angels and the just massive increase in the use of drugs. Can I tell you, nothing much has changed. The names have changed, the nations may have changed, the situations may have changed, but we're still living in this kind of world. 
and it's just escalated and we know more about it, and I think it's a test of Christian character. Are we going to let this culture define us are we going to be defined as Christians in this culture? Uh, when the church dispersed because of persecution in the book of Acts, they were first called Christians in Antioch. In other words, they acted like Christ when they moved to this Gentile town. In 1993, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the West has been undergoing an erosion. And if that was true in 1993, it's certainly true in 2020. One writer said his greatest fear was seeing America gradually subside into decay through default and be defeated, not by the communist movement, but from within by weariness, boredom, cynicism, greed, and in the end, helplessness, before its problems. Now take the last part of that quote, which was given three decades ago, and it defines every day of 2020 to this point. We would be defeated from within by weariness, boredom, cynicism, greed, and in the end, helplessness before its problems. That's the world we live in right now. So let's go back and let's look at the test. Daniel has been taken into slavery. He's in a pagan culture. And the king gives specific orders to bring young people from Judah. Notice Daniel chapter 1. In whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had the ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So again, this capture of Judah and this deportation that happens in three different times of Jerusalem has been a judgment of God. Now it's been prophesied in Isaiah 39, in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 27 and Jeremiah 29. And again, as we mentioned the last time, specifically for violating the law of the Sabbath when it came to letting the land rest. They violated the law and they suffered from the law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, you reap more than you sow. Layman Strauss, who has, I think, one of the best commentaries on Daniel, said the Babylonian captivity clearly illustrates God has more to do with the affairs of nations than most world historians know. So here's the plan of this pagan king in this godless culture that worship many gods. Take these young men, indoctrinate them in the ways of Babylon, brainwash them, and spoil them. 
In other words, give them something for nothing, and at some point, we will require service from them. Spoil them. Give them what they want. And parents are doing that today. A kid at five years old wants to have a phone, and some mom goes out and buys it for them. They've got a tablet. They've got access to everything. We don't have any barriers, and that's why we're not raising any Daniels. Because we have bought into the system that wants to spoil our children because we don't want some child to have something that our child doesn't have. And so we go into debt and we spend money to keep up with the Joneses, and the Joneses are trying to keep up with us. But here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to take the Jewishness out of these Jewish boys to make them think and act and live like Babylonians. And so he ordered their names changed. Now, in the notes, we won't take time to go over that because I'm trying to stick with Daniel here. In the notes, these four young men had Hebrew names which all had some form of Jehovah in their name. And he changes their names to take out some form of Jehovah to put in the name of Bel, the Babylonian god. So there come some choices when this happens. These young men, and again, I'm focusing on Daniel in this relentless series, although the other three could be included. They have been removed from the comfort of their home, most likely taken away from their parents, their parents and their godly influence. These are, at least Daniel is from a royal family, so he's been separated from parents or grandparents. They were to be indoctrinated in a secular world view. Listen, if you don't think that our university system is not indoctrinating people with a secular worldview, you're not reading the courses that are being taught. I mean, American English has been, grammar, American grammar has been removed from an Ivy League school because it's offensive. This is a whole worldview that none of us ever thought would come about. And actions follow teaching. How we live is a result of what we've been taught. And they were to be taught in a world where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did not exist. Their diet would be changed. They would eat at the king's table. Sometimes we forsake the Lord because of success. We get offered a promotion, a better job, more money, and suddenly we soften our conditions. Their names are changed to the names of Babylonian gods. Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of deceptions. And this is not so much a frontal attack on Jehovah and on the ways of God as it is coercion. Just over time, change the narrative. Make them forget the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Give them the names of Babylonian gods. And maybe not in their lifetime, but their kids or their grandkids will grow up and they'll never even know that Judah was ever a nation, that David ever sat on a throne, that Abraham was the father of faith. They won't know any of that. Alistair Begg made a great statement 
about this. He said, and, and you need to listen to this. <clears throat> it's not that we're asked to bow down to idols. He's talking about today. That would be easy to understand and respond to. It's not that there is some kind of blatant and manip manipulative process on the part of a totalitarian government. That would be easy to identify. Nor is it slow, subtle, degenerative, coercive process that is eating into the minds of our children, which is destroying the absolute values that have underpinned so many of biblical convictions that have given strength not only to the people of God, but have given moral consensus to the whole nation. In other words, when you take out the laws of God, the word of God, the spirit of God, the name of God, and you turn a culture away from God, the culture has no moral consensus. And we live in a nation that has no moral consensus. Here's the choice. Will you be absorbed in the culture or stand for Christ? Will you settle for status quo or stand up and speak up? When pressured, are you going to cave or have courage? This is why we have the story of Daniel. This is why we need to be relentless in our pursuit of God, because we are on a downward slide with this generation, and we need a revival. Now, revival is nothing more than a paradigm shift. And a paradigm is a shared set of assumptions and regulations, whether written or unwritten. It's a model for how things are done. It helps us explain our world and predicts our behavior. Well, the paradigm we're on right now is for a secular, godless worldview. The paradigm we need to be on is that there is a God in heaven and he has something to say to us. The danger, now I'm just going to ask you to just lean in a little bit. The danger I see in parents and students and churches today is that our first tendency is to be isolationist. Let's just withdraw from the culture. Let's not rub shoulders with sinners. Uh, don't let your kid even know the name of that kid next door because he said a dirty word one time. So rather than being salt and light, we pull our light darkening shades down and we let the salt decay and the world goes to hell because we have not taught our children to live in a godless world. We've taught them how to be churchy kids, but we haven't taught them how to live in a world that doesn't respect the church. That's on us. That's on the church, and that's on mom and dads. And all the while, our nation is eroding and rotting, and we're pointing fingers at our TV and saying, look at the way those people are acting. Hey, part of the reason they're acting like that is because the church is hiding behind its four walls rather than going into the world and preaching the gospel. It's our fault. 
Judgment begins at the house of God. Now, you can go somewhere where they can tell you to get out your pacifier and suck your thumb and get your security blanket and hold on until Jesus comes back. You will not find that way of thinking anywhere in the New Testament or in 2,000 years of the persecuted church. In fact, this is what Jesus said. So if you're trying to live in isolation and don't want your kids to stand up to the world, what you're doing is you're saying, kids, we will not obey Jesus because it's not safe if we go out there in that world. Look at what Jesus said. Take it up with him. I'm just the messenger. John 17, 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Guess what? Where Adam and Eve failed when the devil said, eat of this fruit, you will not die, Daniel did not fail. He succeeded because he didn't do what he was tempted to do. So there's a decision that he made. Verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself twice. Wouldn't defile himself. Why? Because he'd made up his mind. This is a teenager. He's made up his mind. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The word defile means religious defilement. He would not defile his religious character. He wouldn't eat this unclean food, these meals from the king's table, because the meals were offered to idols before they were eaten. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14 mentions Balak, who enticed the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols. Look at verse 12, Daniel chapter 1. Please test your servants for 10 days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Verse 13, then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So Daniel says, just pull us out for 10 days. Watch us, observe us, and at the 10 days, come back and give us a test. Which group looks better? Those of us that do not eat and drink from the king's table, or those who have bought into the world system. Daniel cooperated when possible, but he refused to engage in anything that will defile him. Daniel chose, because he had made up his mind, to be distinctive whatever it cost. Now here's a question. Are we walking parallel with the world system? just down the wide road, or are we crossing the world system on a narrow path? What does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. 
We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to make up our minds. We need to quit vacillating and compromising and we're following Jesus one day, but if a better offer comes along, we'll just do that and then we'll confess it at youth camp and confess it at refresh and confess it in a revival when we get really convicted about it and then we'll go back to it again. We're just making resolutions up and down, hot and cold. We need to be willing to accept the consequences of being faithful to Christ. We need to submit to authorities and government, but know when to draw the line. Jesus said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God. But when Caesar demanded that Christians say, Caesar is Lord, they said, no, Jesus is Lord. And it cost them their lives. We need to trust God. Verse 8, Daniel made up his mind. He resolved. Verse 9, now God granted. What did God do? God honored his confession and his convictions. George Mueller, one of the greatest men of faith to ever live in the last 2,000 years, said God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. I say, and say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. You know what happened? It's easy to live for God in Jerusalem. Even when people in Jerusalem are not obeying God, hey, at least there's still the temple. At least our church building is still there. But you go to a foreign land and there's a test, a trial, an obstacle, a difficulty, a defeat that caused Daniel to make decisions that had already been affirmed in his mind before he put, was put in that situation. Verse 5, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had eaten at the king's choice table. And verse 17, as for those, these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. You see, choices matter. They determine destiny. Now these men, Daniel in particular, we're talking about, didn't buck the education. They didn't buck the name change, but they refused to compromise on the food. They drew their line on the diet. Why? Because Jews had strict diets that could set them apart from the culture. Now, we know that dietary laws have been set aside because of what Paul says in the New Testament. But in this day, there were reasons for dietary laws. It was to make Jews distinctive to ask the question, why don't you do that? Why don't you eat that? I cannot tell you and you don't have to like this, but I'm really close to the end, so stay with me. I cannot tell you how many times T. 
Terry and I have been asked why we don't drink alcohol. Every time, it gives us an opportunity to say, because we don't need it. Because we have convictions as Christians that we don't need to put anything in our body that would control us other than the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, something or someone is going to control your life. And the problem is we have rampant alcoholism in America today because people can't stop with one drink. Can I tell you something? If you never take one, you never become an alcoholic. And you never deal with the grief and the sorrow that it brings to your family and to our society. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food and with the wine which he drank. Daniel, King James says, purposed in his heart. This may seem trivial, but it was pivotal. It was how they would be judged. Now, you can't judge them by changing their name for 10 days. You can't judge them by giving them Babylonian education for 10 days. But the one thing they knew that they could be judged by after 10 days was the food and the wine. This was significant because the food would have been unclean meat offered to the Babylonian idols. The wine was a part of temple orgies of most false religions. This wasn't a fad diet. This was a test of faithfulness. So Daniel asked permission. He doesn't just say, well, i tell you one thing. I know better than anybody. He goes and graciously asks permission for what was outside of the command to say, hey, these things on the outside, you can change my name. You can put me in this situation. But it, what defiles us, Jesus says, is on the inside. Sometimes the eternal is related to things that we might think are insignificant. That little insignificant decision that we make might be an eternal decision. As I was working on this message, I was reminded of that poem that Tom Elliff quotes a lot. I can't quote it, but I can read it. This is the kind of young people and children we need to be raising when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how ruthlessly he perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses who he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. You want the names of this generation to be forgotten in the dust of decaying cultures? Then don't stand up for anything. You want to be a Daniel that's remembered 
long after you're gone, then get some gospel guts and have some convictions and put your big boy pants on and stand up and quit cowing down to every little whim and fad that goes through this world. Oh, no, you, you won't be popular. You might not be cool. But you'll be godly. And one day, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. And our lives are going to be revealed and our works are going to be revealed. And what we've done with our lives is either going to be wood, hay, and stubble, just burned up, or it's going to be gold, silver, and precious stone. Young person, college student, mom, dad, grandparent. Let's be people who invest in gold, silver, and precious stone in our children, not in stuff that's going to end up in the garbage pile when all is said and done. Father, help us to be a people who build character in our own lives and in the lives of those that we influence. In Jesus' name, amen.